Amen. Well, good morning, church. Uh, man, what a sweet spirit. Amen. And I'm about to show you a video for just a little bit of vision for the future. Um, but I don't want to lose what the Lord is doing here this morning. And so today's sermon is about um, really us focusing on Christ. And so before I show you the video, and I do want to, I want you to see, I want you to be excited about where we're going as a church. I know Pastor Spencer prayed, man. I just want to have our hearts ready to hear about Jesus this morning. Because that's all there is. There's nothing else. If Jesus didn't come back from the grave, we have 70 or 80 or 90 years, and then that's it. But that's not what God has for you. God has both abundant and eternal life. So I want to pray that I'm going to show the video and give some vision, and then we're going to open the Word of God this morning, Nehemiah 13, all right? Father, your Word's about to be preached. It's doesn't return void. It's weighty. It's true. It's life-giving. And all of it points us to your son, Jesus Christ, who saved us. And so, God, I pray that you prepare our hearts this morning to hear from the Word. Prepare our hearts to hear a little bit of vision of what's happening at Coastal so that we can exalt the gospel of Jesus together. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Check out this video. Hi, I'm Rachel. Hey, I'm Brett. We currently attend Coastal Yorktown, but we bought a house in Williamsburg two years ago and continued attending Coastal Yorktown even with the drive. Having a campus in Williamsburg um, is going to really open up a lot of doors for us. And it was a great opportunity uh, once we moved to Williamsburg from, from Newport News to have that local church right here in Williamsburg with us. I'm especially excited for the children's ministry because I'll be helping out a lot with that and we just have so many kids here and so many needs. I'm really excited to just pour the gospel into all the, the little babies and the kiddos of Coastal in Williamsburg. I'd say what excites me the most is just having that community close by and being able to bring the community of Williamsburg itself in on, on what Coastal has to offer. Um, is a big deal for me, and that really excites me to to have the college students nearby, and also just the uh, local people of Williamsburg to have that opportunity. Here in Williamsburg, where there's so many young families and lots of college students too, I'm just really excited to invite them and connect with our community here. I think it's worthwhile giving to the endowment fund just for future generations. I think the opportunity is there for us now to give our money, our resources, whatever it may be that we can give to this endowment fund so that the future of Coastal, more importantly, the future of the gospel can continue to move forward even after we might not be in this area, we might not be here, but future campuses may have the opportunity to grow, uh, to exist. Uh, and I think that uh, that is just something that will be of interest to everybody in the congregation. Good stuff, huh, Coastal? All right, so quick announcement, okay? On November the 12th, I believe, after this service, I'm going to be doing an endowment luncheon. So I made the video a couple weeks ago. I know a lot of people are like, I don't even know what it is. The endowment luncheons where you need to come and hear about it. I just did it last week or two weeks ago in Chesapeake. Uh, it was incredible. They received it so great. They were excited about it. They understood it. And uh, so I want you to come. We're going to have breakfast or breakfast or lunch, brunch-ish, okay, for you to come. It's going to be in the student space. I want you to come attend the service. And then after the service, come to the endowment lunch. I'm going to take your questions. I'm going to share some vision. And I promise you, you're really going to be excited 
excited. Okay, signing up helps us, so we make sure that you have enough food. All right, so you can sign up by scanning the code. It lets us know you're coming, and uh, I really, really, I can't urge you enough to come to this. It's really going to be exciting for the future of Coastal. Everybody with me? All right, second thing, when it comes to vision, this is really cool. It's one of the things I'm going to talk about in the endowment lunch. Uh, in summer, uh, we sent 200 people to Williamsburg. Isn't that a cool? I hear from Yorktown. 200 people signed up and said, I'm going to go to Williamsburg to help us plant that campus. And part of the sending was to alleviate so that we could have more seating, parking, and children's space here at Yorktown so we continue to grow here at Yorktown. We're back to full at Yorktown. Isn't that crazy? Uh, praise the Lord. So... Um, so I'm going to do a little vision, all right? If it's possible for you in the future to go to the 8 or the 11, that helps us to continue to have space here. Now, if this is what works for your family, it's what works for your family. I'm not chasing you away, uh, but just give that some prayer and thought. And then after the services today, I know a lot of times people go to lunch or whatever. We really, really need you to take your car off the parking lot today at the end of the services. I'm not threatening that it will be towed, but it could be decorated for a trunk or treat, okay? So uh, take that. That'll help us for Trunk or Treat. I, uh, so Nehemiah 13, I, um, my wife, when my kids were little, I was, I'm not great with little kids. Like, you know, I don't even like to hold them because I used to fumble the football when I played football, so I'm just getting nervous, you know? And, and so when my kids were like little and ankle biters, and my wife did not do this much, but every so often she would come and she'd say, listen, I'm, I'm going to go out tonight or tomorrow evening with some friends. And that was like the most terrifying thing she could say to me, right? And then she would give me the list of things that had to happen. And I made a lot of promises with that list, most of which I didn't keep, right? It was like, they need to eat healthy. Yeah, I'll do that. Not too much screen time. You know, no, no, they got to, you know, don't feed them this, okay? And uh, get them in bed by here. I'm like, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. And usually like 15 minutes after she left, they were eating ice cream for dinner in front of the crocodile hunter for the rest of the night. So, you know, that's kind of how it went. And I was just so bad. And, and, uh, you know, cause I just wasn't great with kids. And so anyway, um, it's kind of where we are with Nehemiah. Okay. So remember we started this journey. It's a historical book, the nation of Israel sent into exile cause they were disobedient to the word of the Lord. Right. But God raises up a king, Zerubbabel, and some priests and some scribes around him. And he says, listen, I'm going to rebuild this thing. And so Zerubbabel goes back to the promised land, but it's not happening the way that, that uh, Nehemiah hears. And he, and he has a burden for the nation of Israel for the glory of God, for the heart of the kingdom to thrive. And so remember, Nehemiah's in a foreign land, King Artaxerxes, and he says, listen, I got to go rebuild the walls. And so Artaxerxes sends him, they rebuild the walls, 52 days, I think, if my memory serves me right, remember? And then last week we looked at how they, they read the word of the law and the word of God washed over them. They restarted the Feast of the Booze, which hadn't been done for year for generations. Uh, and so now, if you remember, I think it's in Nehemiah chapter 2, remember when Nehemiah approached Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes said, how long are you going to be gone? 
And so he knew he had to go back and serve his king. And so now he sets up the people to thrive under the word of God and the worship of God. And so in Nehemiah chapter 10, he goes through the list of promises that they promised to keep. And it's kind of like me going through the list of the things with my wife before she leaves. And they're like, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. And we're going to do that. And then uh, chapter 11 and 12 is kind of how they disperse the leaders through the towns. And then in chapter 13, Nehemiah is back with Artaxerxes. We don't know for how long, probably a length of time. But when he comes back to Jerusalem, they haven't kept any of the rules that they said they were going to keep in chapter 10. Everybody with me? And, and so this is, and then story, and the story just kind of ends like that, right? And, and and the reason it ends like that, and I've titled this an incomplete reform, or is because. Outward religion doesn't take care of our greatest need. Everybody with me? And all of Nehemiah's pointing to, there's a truer, better Nehemiah in Christ who transforms us from the inside out as he takes care, Christ takes care of our greatest need, which is our sin issue, and transforms our hearts to be worshiping almighty God. And then in that, we have abundant and eternal life. So that's kind of, I could probably pray. There's the sermon. Okay, so here we go. Chapter 13, the first thing we see is what I'm calling, there's four areas where we see the sins of compromise. So the nation of Israel, and they all, you could read in chapter 10, every single area is an area they promised to keep the law of the Lord. And so first of all, letter A, they compromised in worship. They compromised in worship, Nehemiah 13, 4 to 9. Now before this, Elishib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to who, church? Tobiah, remember him? He's bad. Remember he was opposing everything Nehemiah was doing prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, the wine, the oil, which were given by the commandment of the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, came to Jerusalem, and had discovered the evil that Elishib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Man, I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Man, I would have loved to have been there for that, man. Like, couch, gone, you know. Hutch, gone. And he just starts tossing it out. And then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering of frankincense. By the way, what does this remind you of? Running this through the New Testament, who does this remind you of? Jesus, right? Like, Jesus is serious, and God is serious about our worship of him. And by the way, we have to worship the Lord the way the Lord has told us to worship Him. We, we don't get to worship the God of our making. We have to worship the God who is. And this temple was a place that God had set up for the people to worship the Lord. Now, of course, okay, we run this through the New Testament, right? And God's doing something new in the New Testament, right? And, and there's a couple of pieces to this. First of all, the temple is no longer a location, this church building is not the temple. You guys with me? Uh, I, in fact, I, uh, 
I get really uncomfortable when people call this space the sanctuary, right? I know what that means, and I know why we do that, but, but guess what? God doesn't live in this building. Yes? And the reason that's important is if God lives in this building, then you don't take God with you. You can go out here off on Monday and live however you want because God lives up there on 101 Village Avenue, right? doesn't work that way. No, what do we learn in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians 6, right? The body is what? Temple of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, have you ever heard people say, well, you know, you shouldn't eat at McDonald's because, you know, we know that's bad, and the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And listen, you probably shouldn't overeat at McDonald's, but in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul's talking about the body being the temple of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about it in the context of sexual sin and sexual sin having different consequences than other sins. Yes? And he says, listen, you, know, you get messed up in sexual sin, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 4, we learn, New Testament, we worship the Lord in what? Spirit and truth, right? And so God is serious about us not compromising his command to worship. And so when we worship at Coastal, like the truth, we're going to preach the truth of God. We're going to stand on it. It's not going to bend from it. It's not, we don't get to do that. It's God's word. It's our job as pastors to deliver the word of God. It's, It's our job to then submit to his word. When God puts 20-some one-another passages in the New Testament, love one another, bear one another, pray for one another, serve one another. And we say, listen, our vehicle for doing that is small groups so that, that being a follower of Jesus and just sitting in rows, straight rows facing forward, it's also sitting in a circle and helping one another. Amen. And small group is where that happens. And you go, I don't know if I'm going to be in a small group. I mean, it's not up to you to decide how to worship, God is serious about these are not trifling matters to the Lord. And so we gather corporately for worship and we sing and we open the word of God and we pray. And I want you to come in here with, a, you know, I think the spirit is the Holy Spirit, but I also think it's kind of the, we're spiritually ready to worship. We're singing, you guys, with enthusiasm, which you guys do. I'm preaching the choir this morning, but, you know, we come and God is serious about our worship. Letter B, the second compromise that we see, the sin of compromise, the compromise in giving. So in chapter 10, they promised to tithe. I'm not going to re-preach the giving sermon, but we're going to just go through this quickly, right? Nehemiah 3.10. I also found out that portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So in other words, the people weren't giving, and the people that were being paid to oversee the temple, there was no money, so they had to go get a job. So they had to go back to the field, and they couldn't serve the people of God at the temple, right? And so here it is, verse 7. So I confronted the officials. I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and I set them in their stations. And all Judah brought the tithe and the grain and the wine and the oil in the storehouses. And I pointed as treasures over the house of Shelemiah, the priest. By the way, see, the old priest is gone. A godly priest has been installed. Zadok, the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, as their assistant, Hannah, of the son of Zachor, of Matina. And I, for they, this is very important by the way, for they were considered reliable. Listen, you should expect your spiritual leaders at your church to be the brightest and the best and hard workers and reliable. Amen? 
None of my donors don't mean that. Great, I'm on vacation for the next month. No, like you should expect that, right? And their duty was to distribute to the brothers. Now, I'm not going to re-preach the giving sermon, but here's the deal, right? It was the sin of compromise. They were not tithing. And in that, the ministry was, was being neglected. I, um, I'm not going to get political this morning. Thank you. Y'all don't like when I do that. Some, some people do. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, but here's the deal. Every time I get up here and say, politics is not going to save the world, I get a whole bunch of attaboy, yeah, amen, right? And when I get up here and say, listen, church, if your kid comes home and they say they want to be in vocational ministry, like you should go, man, that's awesome, right? And sometimes our first response is, man, there's no money in that. What are you doing? And when I get up here and I say, man, the church needs God's brightest and his best so that the gospel will go forward successfully, I get a whole bunch of amens. Amen, 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 all right, whatever. It means I agree. Okay, so... And everybody gets awesome, man, that's great. And then I preach a sermon on tithing and it sucks the life out of the room. Listen, if, if God's going to send us the best and the brightest, and that ain't me, by the way. You, you did not get that at Coastal Church, I'm sorry. The staff around me, fantastic, okay? So um, guess what, you ready? Your pastor's kids, they need braces too. Marty must have saw my kids before they had braces. So he's like, yeah, no doubt. Like, I read this this week. Only 5% of American Christians actually tithe, give a tenth. If American Christianity, if all everybody in America said, I'm a Christian and they're a regular church girl, were to tithe, last year the American church would have had an additional $139 billion to forward the gospel. Okay? So when, if we're serious about, well, politics isn't the answer, this isn't the answer. Man, the church is the answer. We need the best and the brightest. What's happening in the United is the best and the brightest went home to become farmers because they have families to raise. And man, if we take care of what God is doing, there's so much more that the church could be doing, and it's up to us to influence. And by, by the way, I think you guys are great. I think I'm preaching to the choir. But also what a challenge us. It's the sin of compromise, and we see this over and over and over and over and over, just in the book of Nehemiah, that people are not generous with what God's called them to steward. All right, number three, they compromise the Sabbath. Let us see. The third one, they compromise the Sabbath, 13, 15. In those days... I saw in Judah people treading the winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. And the Tyrrhenians also who lived in the city, they brought in fish and all kinds of goods and they sold them on the Sabbath day to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. You can tell he's like animated. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city, and now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? Let me park here for a minute. Let's, let's get our time in history. 
Nation of Israel incubated in Egypt. Joseph takes Genesis, end of Genesis. Joseph takes the nation of Israel into, into Egypt. They incubate into a great nation. God raises up a Moses leader, right? Exodus, they head across the wilderness. They go into the promised land. God gives them the law. He says, if you do all these things, covenant blessings. If you don't do these things, covenant cursings. They didn't do what they were told. Generations, God kept sending prophets. You need to obey the word of the Lord. You need to obey the word of the Lord. They don't obey the word of the Lord. God finally says enough. He sends them into exile. Then after their 70 years in exile is done, okay, God raises up some prophets and kings, Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and some people to rebuild the wall. And then then, then they rebuild the wall in 50 some days. They read the law of God, which we talked about last week. Man, everything seems set for the kingdom of God to advance. And in just a few short, we don't know exactly how long, but I'm going to guess a few short years. Okay, in a few short years, they're already not doing what the law of God said. And so, Nehemiah is ticked. You guys with me? He's like, man, what? we already went through this. How is it that we can't keep the law of God for just a couple years? And so in verse 19, and so as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem, this is great, by the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Check Tobias' furniture, okay? So from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. (laughs) They got the message, right? Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. They neglected the Sabbath. Now, a lot of running this through the New Testament, there's a lot of implications and a lot that I could unpack. But suffice it to say, I'm going to summarize for sake of time, the Sabbath is a gift from the Lord to give us rest and to give us opportunity to worship corporately, okay? Rest and worship, I think, are two very important principles out of the Sabbath. So first of all, these are good principles for you and for me. So let me give you the riverbanks of work. The scriptures give two riverbanks. One is laziness. God does not bless laziness. Some of you in this room, quite frankly, are lazy. You're not working hard. God's not, you're not seeing the hand of the Lord like you should. And there's a laziness. There's an undiscipline to your life. You're hoping other people will provide for you. And God says we should work with our hands, live within our means, have a little left over to share. It teaches that in 1 Timothy. Okay, that's one riverbank. The other riverbank is some of you in this room are working too hard. You're working seven days a week as if all the provision of your home and life depends on you. It does not. And God says, you can rest. Trust me. Right? And so the riverbank, and usually what we do through life is we bounce back and forth between the two of them, the truth be told. Right? There's times I'm being lazy. There's times I'm overworking. And, you know, and, and we need to preach these truths of rest and dependence on the Lord, and buck up, little camper, because sometimes it's hard work, okay? So, you know, it's, it's, we go between the riverbanks of, of those two. Secondly, they were neglecting the corporate worship by working on the Sabbath. They weren't wor- worshiping. God has commanded us to worship Him corporately. D- did you know that studies in America show that the average American Christian— 
the person that claims to be a Christian, attends corporate worship less than once a month now in America, right? By the way, that makes announcements really hard for me because I'll make an announcement and people are like, you didn't tell us X, Y, and Z. You know, it's like, well, actually I said that, you know, because I'm not going to make it every week. Y'all get bored with hearing trunk or treats again this week kind of thing, you know, kind of thing. So, man, there we are, right? We're once a week. So, listen, let me encourage you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should be worshiping the Lord every single week. I know you take a vacation. You take a vacation. You either find a local church, join us online, or do both, okay? When, when are you on vacation? But because, I always say vision leaks, but, like, our spirituality leaks, it, it doesn't take long for my mind to be filled with the things of the world and with idols and things that don't give me life. And suddenly, corporate worship is ultimately about reminding my heart and mind and my rest is in Christ alone. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20? It's one of my favorite passages. He said, come unto me, all you who labor and you're heavy laden, and I will give you what, church? Anybody here exhausted? Yeah, sometimes, maybe not always, but I would say most of the time it's because my eyes are not focused on Christ. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says. This is his rules, his ways. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A compromise number three is a compromise of Sabbath. Number four, the third, fourth compromise is the home as a place for discipleship. They compromise the home as a place for discipleship, okay? So this is a very tricky passage uh, that gets, has, in church history, has been misused and even abused, okay? This is a passage about interracial marriage, Okay, so, so let me just summarize this right now. All right, I do not believe the Bible teaches that we can't be interracially married. Married. Okay, that is not what Nehemiah is teaching here. What Nehemiah is warning of is marrying in such a way that the belief on Jesus and on worship of the true and living God is not shared. Okay, and how do I know this? By the way, I know this because. Moses married interracially. He married a Midianite. He's never condemned for that. In fact, in Exodus chapter 4, Zipporah actually protects Moses from the wrath of God by having him walk in obedience to some things he wasn't obeying. So it's not about interracial marriage. It's about worshiping the one true and living God. So everybody with me on that as a summary? Because this, this passage has been abused. So now let's look at it, all right? And so in those days, Nehemiah 13, 23, in those days I saw... The Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of the people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. Some of you are like, that's crazy. And then some of you are going to watch an NFL game today and watch your opponent get tackled by his hair. And you're going to be like, yes, get him. So don't throw too many stones at Nehemiah. All right. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God and made, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women made him sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? What Nehemiah is reminding us of is in the house, there has to be a unity of worship. 
the New Testament, Paul uses the language in the Lord. We should marry in the Lord. This is not about race. This was about when Solomon married other country, women from other countries, they brought in idols that then there was false worship in his home, which then fracture, goes on to fracture the kingdom of God. And so, so you want to hear something really cool? Before God created a nation, and before God created the church or built his church, he created the home. He created the home. The home is the central part of discipleship and worship to the Lord. You guys with me? It's not the church's responsibility to teach your kids about Jesus. The church is here to supplement what's being taught already at home. Genesis 1 and 2, God has given us the order for marriage and what it's to look like between one man and one woman. It was God's design, and here's the deal. It's no surprise that the enemies of the things of the Lord in our culture would be attacking the home. Amen? It's attacking the home by gender. It's attacking the home by the way, in this confusion of gender, it's gonna there'll be less childbearing, which is a violation of the command of the Lord to be fruitful and multiply, right? And disciple the nations by discipling our children. So I've heard a lot about teaching around this passage, right? The the point of the passage is actually not interracial marriage. It's it's the idea of of marrying uh, in the unity in the worship of the Lord. And he uses Solomon as an example. Solomon was walking with God and then he got distracted by bringing in false worship into his home. Now running this through uh, the New Testament, right? It's the importance of, of the home focusing on worshiping the Lord. Now the new, te- you know, the culture, if it even promotes marriage, which you know, sometimes it doesn't, but if it even promotes marriage, it will promote it in such a way that, you know, hey, you marry for looks. Now, listen, that's what my wife did, and that has not worked out well for her, okay? So, or marry for money, right, or clout, or education, or earning potential. The purpose of marriage is to make each of us more like Jesus. The purpose of your marriage is not so much about your happiness, though I hope you live happily ever after. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is for you to be holy. And for what the gift of your spouse, both their talents and the things that you love about them and the things that annoy you about them are there for you to grow, to be more like Jesus. And if God gives gifts you children, then he has built your home in such a way that you are to bring up your children in the Lord. I want to make a couple points, okay? Now, before I make these points, um, this is one of those conversations that's nuanced. And if I try to say everything, I don't say anything. Everybody with me on that? And so I'm, I'm going to make some real general biblical remarks that at the end of the day, may not apply specifically to your particular and nuanced situation. So nod your head that you understand what I'm saying, even if you don't. Okay, that'll save me the email. I said, I told you. All right, so here it is. A couple of things I want to tell you. Broad brush generalizations about marriage. Number one, marriage is reserved for a biological man and a biological woman committed to the confines of a lifetime relationship together. Okay? 
That's biblical marriage. Number two, if you're a Christian and you're married to a Christian, the general rule of thumb is the Bible expects you to stay married to your spouse for a lifetime. It's very nuanced there, right? But God wants you to stay married to that person. Number three, if you're a Christian and you're already married to someone who's not a Christian, the Bible wants you to stay married to your unbelieving spouse. Unless the spouse decides to leave, you cannot make a spouse stay. And the purpose of this is you may win your spouse to Christ and you provide spiritual holiness or disciplines for your children. You're the one promoting Christ in your home. Number four, if you're single and you're praying about dating or you're dating, you should be dating only another Christian. Paul says that you should be dating in the Lord is the language he uses in both 1 Corinthians 7 and 2 Corinthians 6. And by the way, singles, um, if you're like, if you're a month or two into dating someone and you don't, and you know, I go, oh, you're dating, oh, that's awesome, are they a Christian? And you go, I don't know. That already tells me that you're dating for the wrong purposes. Finding out if a person is a Christian is a first date question. Amen? And a first date question, hey, tell me about your church. Tell me how you're involved in your church. Where are you serving? What small group are you in? If you can't get clear answers to those, it was a great first date. God's got somebody else for you. <laughs> or God's going to mature that person until they'll be ready. But until then, right? These are the questions we need. And this is the purpose of first, is Nehemiah 13, is dating in the Lord. So the nation of Israel, where they made these promises in Nehemiah 10, they didn't keep them. Nehemiah 13 shows us that they didn't keep them. And so the book of Nehemiah essentially closes, uh, and the reason I called this uh, um, an incomplete reform, is it closes with Nehemiah setting the nation of Israel up for success by pointing them to Christ, okay? So it's an incomplete reform, doesn't happen, 500, four or 500 years later, Jesus ends up on the scene, right? And so Nehemiah finishes with this. And I want you, if you have your own Bible and you want to write in it, write in it, okay? These will be my three final points and I'll move quickly. Nehemiah 13, 30. Thus I cleansed, circle the word cleansed. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. Number two, I established, circle the word established, the duties of the priest and Levites, each in his work, and 31, and I provided so I cleansed, I established, and I provided for the wood offering and at appointed times for the first fruits. And then Nehemiah says, remember me, oh my God, for good. Nehemiah books closes and the Re Reformation is not complete. <laughs> because one of the things that we learn is outward rules don't take care of the real issue. What we need, point number two, is transformation from the inside out. Nehemiah points to a truer, better Nehemiah. And Jesus is that truer, better Nehemiah. And so letter A, Jesus is a savior that cleanses. 
Our issue is not outward obedience. Listen, if you, if you leave here today having heard the compromises of Israel and you go, man, I need, to, I need to leave here and be better. I need to worship. I need to rest. I need to give. You know, I need to be serious about my dating. If you think it's some kind of checkbox of religiosity that makes God happy, you've missed the point. If you don't have a heart for the, God, for the kingdom of God, you need heart transformation. You need, first need to be captured with what God has done for you in Christ and worship the Savior. I had the privilege this week of preaching a memorial service, a funeral service for someone. And uh, one of the things, and I, I love preaching funeral services because I just think they, they make us pause and remember what's really important, all of us. One of the things I always ask is, in these funeral services I do, I say, how does, what does the Bible say? How, how does the Bible say we get to heaven? And I always say in the funeral service, like, you know, I think if we went out these doors and went around the community and asked people, how do you get to heaven? I think most people say you have to be good to go to heaven. The good go to heaven. And I always say, no, the Bible does not teach that the good go to heaven. The Bible teach only the perfect go to heaven which leaves all of us in a precarious position. And this goes back to last week's sermon, right? Of active and the passive obedience of Christ. The fact that Jesus kept the law of God perfectly is just as essential to your salvation as Jesus suffering and dying and bodily raising from the cross, dying on the cross and raising from the dead. All, both of all those things are necessary for your salvation. But sometimes I think we overlook the obedience of Christ to the law of God. When you repent of your sin and you believe that Jesus is your rescue plan, what happens, spiritually speaking, by the grace of God, is the works of Christ, his perfect works of law-keeping, are credited to your spiritual bank account by grace through faith. So now, no longer does God see you as a mess-up and a sinner. He sees you as righteous in the person of Christ. Isn't that amazing? And so Jesus cleanses us by his sacrifice and then gifts us his credited righteousness. This is the doctrine of justification, by the way. By the way, how powerful is the doctrine of justification? How leavening and influential it is, is it? It is the reformers that rediscovered this lost teaching from the Catholic Church some 500 years ago. And when they started teaching it, it influenced the culture so much, it literally pulled the culture out of the Dark Ages. That's why we have to stand on this truth. This truth that we believe, they're way bigger than just what happens here, it's everything. That's why Jesus said, You'll know the truth, and the truth will do something for you. What will do? free. It's all of it. And if we don't know the truth, we're going to end up in bondage. And so Jesus gives us a new heart. And by the way, you've, you've heard the story, like what happens when you stand before the gate, pearly gates, and there's Peter, and Peter asks you, why should I let you in? Right? And you can give the gospel, let you in, but, which is true. Like you get into heaven because of the person and work of Jesus. I've repented of my sins. I believe in Jesus. But it actually even goes a little deeper than that. Why does God let us into heaven? Because we have a God that is true to his promises. We have a God that says, if you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, you're going to have eternity with me. We worship a God that is true to his promises. Amen? 
And so it's because of the, he is true to his promises, and he says the person of work of Christ cleanses us. First John 1, 9, we can openly declare we can be cleansed. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do something for us, church. What? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Nehemiah said, I set up for cleansing. I'm pointing to the one that's going to cleanse you. Let her be. Nehemiah said, I established some things. We worship a Savior who establishes things for us. Jesus is a Savior to the established. What does he establish? Number one, he establishes abundant life. Jesus establishes abundant life. He said in John chapter 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. The idea here is that when you leave here and you run to your idols instead of Jesus, you're trying to find life by sipping through these tiny little straws when God has a waterfall of freedom for you. We're settling for far less than God has. There's a, there's a, there really is a God-sized hole in your heart that you're going to try to fill with the things of the world, and it won't fill it. It's only when we do things Christ's way with a transformed heart that we have abundant life. Number two, what does God say? What does Christ have? Is eternal life. He says in John chapter eleven. I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he asked Martha, do you believe this? He's established eternal life. Number three, Jesus has established his church. Matthew 16, and I tell you, as Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, when I hear a person say, well, I love God and I love Jesus, but the church, I don't even really go. Christ established his church. If you love Christ, you love what Christ loves. He loves his church with all of its warts and imperfections. He still loves his church. And he's gifted us the church. He's establishing his church to to link arms, to to herald the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to refresh our hearts and to keep us encouraged in the Lord until the day that our faith becomes sight. He established a church. And then number three, Jesus is a savior that provides. And what does he provide? He provides strength to endure. He provides strength to endure. And how does he do that? Well, he does it through the local church. He does it through the gift of his Holy Spirit. And because Jesus is a, is a tr- truer, better Nehemiah, he reforms us from the inside out. How many of y'all, how many of y'all uh, watch the news right now and your anxiety starts to spike? Anybody be honest? I do too. Like, man, I got to be really careful how much news I take in. I take in too much news, I start putting in my hope in politicians. <laughs> Anybody do that? I know who's getting my vote. <laughs> They'll fix all this. <clears throat> you know, Jesus, as he was ascending into heaven, well, actually, it was uh, his last sermon with his disciples before he suffers, dies, and ascends into heaven. So it's really one of his last main sermons with his disciples. He says this to them. He knows what's coming. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you, but let not your hearts be troubled and neither be afraid. 
Church, you don't have to be afraid. Jesus is in control. Two amens. Okay, you ready? Church, you don't need to be afraid. Jesus is in control. Remember what he said in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount? Why do you worry about what you're going to eat? Check out the birds. I take care of them, and I love you way more than the birds. Jesus isn't going to let us not get what we need all the way till our faith becomes sight. If we're suffering, he will give us the strength. If it gets hard, he will encourage us. If we need food, he will provide it. And if he doesn't provide it, then he wants you home with him. Sounds like a win-win to me. Amen? Amen? My, uh, my wife and I did something. I, I didn't run this illustration. Worship team, you guys can come on out. I didn't run this illustration by her. So we'll see how this goes when I get home. So uh, anyway, um, we did... Um, we did a yard sale yesterday, and um, they're horrible, okay? So I, I'm, what I'm telling her now is I'm not doing it again, okay? So uh, we haven't had this conversation, but so for years, we like mounded stuff up in the garage, you know, like we're gonna have a yard sale. And finally, I looked at my garage in the mound, and it just was clear. I was like, we're having the yard sale, and I put the date on the calendar. I was like, yard sale, this date. And so literally, it was probably eight to 10 hours of work, you know, to put all the stuff out, you know, and then haggle over prices. No, I'm not taking a dollar, dollar fifty. okay? That's a bottom line, you know? And we walked away from the yard sale. I don't even think we made $5 an hour by the time it was all said and done. And, uh, and it just got me to thinking, like, that's a little bit like the things of the world. They're exhausting. Work, 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 work. You got to have the, you're like, you're going to hamster wheel. And you get done, you're like, man, it's not worth it. There's only one thing that's worth it. It's Christ. Only Christ is worth it. Everything else that you pursue will leave you exhausted. It is only Christ that captures your heart, that then gives you a heart for the kingdom. Even religion will leave you exhausted. I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about transformation in worship of God's Son who saved us and set us free and gives us words of life. And when we have a transformed heart, we have a heart that is cleansed. We have a heart that beats for the things of God. We have the hope of life abundant and life eternal. We have a heart that has an eternal perspective that knows this world is not all there is for me. I got something way better coming. So I have one prayer for you, church. I want your hearts this week to be captured by Christ every moment of the day. That will transform the world. Amen. And so let's stand. I'm going to pray over you. And we're got singing about Jesus. If you need prayer this morning, our prayer team, prayer team, you can come on up right now. You're, they're under the screens. If you don't know Christ today, man, come talk to our prayer team members. They would love to share with you. You can turn from the things of the world, turn from your sin, trust Christ to have a transformed heart. Father, I thank you for these amazing people. God, may we not sip out of straws, out of dried up wells that don't give us life. But may we want to run to the one who stood up at the Feast of the Booths 
And he said, drink deeply from me. I am a spring and a well that doesn't run dry. I am the water of life. God, may we drink deeply from Christ and may we worship him as we worship him in song this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.